Get ready for the education podcast that brings you the most unique, no-nonsense takes on school leadership, teaching, coaching, and all things K-12 education. This is Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. I am Michael Sombert, the founder of Skyrocket, here as always with our chief schools officer, the good doctor, Dr. Antonio Vance. Antonio, how are you doing today? I'm amazing, man. I'm super excited about today's conversation, as always, but more excited today. Yeah, we have a, a gentleman who's joining us. Is it fair to say, uh, Antonio, that he is a, a true international man of mystery? Is that is that fair? Yes, and I like that. A gentleman, I'm going to call him that. Um, <laughs> but absolutely, a uh, spectacular um, guest today. I'm really excited. Well, he's, he, we call him a gentleman in part because he is, but also in part because uh, he's from England. And so uh, it seems to be fitting. Uh, he'll seem more polite than we probably will, but I think he's going to mix it up with us. We welcome <laughs> <laughs> he's going to get he's we're going to get into some really cool conversations about um, a really unique educational model that our, our guest John Bomber is uh, deeply immersed in. Uh, we're also going to talk about what education across the globe and particularly on the other side of the pond looks like. We're going to have a conversation about education innovation as well. But before we get there, and I should we should let folks know this is our second straight daytime recording of informal observations. The last oh, time was a scheduling thing. This is because our guest is coming to us um, from a time zone that's five hours ahead. And so we didn't want him to be on the uh, on the line at, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. So we are uh, coming to you again during the day, except I think, unlike the last time when there were no cocktails to be had, I think we're gonna, mm -hmm. I think we're changing that uh, for this one. It is Friday, just in case folks are wondering. Before we get there, folks, we're going to do our three questions for Dr. Vance. The first one, uh, always a surprise, always something random. And I'm not going to say favorite because last time I said favorite movie or I said best movie and then you kind of bullied me into going favorite. <laughs> and uh, I did, I did uh, just, we'll pause here for a second because friends, Antonio is his favorite movie of all time was a movie called Serial Mom with <laughs> Kathleen T Turner, which is random and amazing. And uh, I, inappropriate. I, I'm totally inappropriate. She's a serial killer who like, she's like this normal housewife mom who like just starts killing everybody who like pisses her off. Right. I, I promised Vance that I would watch the movie. And when I put it on, I realized two minutes in that I'd actually seen it. So I kind of did some flipping through so I could become re-familiarized with it. But I have seen the movie and I do think it's awesome. Uh, and so for this week, we're going to say not favorite, but best. Best, Antonio, a, a, a subject that's close to both of our hearts. Who's the best rapper of all time? Rapper? Oh, See, you, but you keep asking these questions that are going to get me in trouble. I know. You are. Um, you, have a, a, you have people who, who yell at you about your opinions. You made yeah, that very clear. Yeah, you yeah. have a, I think this is your circle of friends, to be honest, man. <laughs> I think you have a judgmental circle of friends that you keep getting in trouble for saying what pizza place is the best. Or This is <laughs> what, true. This is true. Right? This is absolutely true. Um, oh man. Well, look, I mean, wow. So I, this is an uncommon opinion, um, yeah. but I think toe to toe, mm. I believe MC that Eminem mm. is probably one of the best rappers. I know this is unpopular. 
I um, I don't think it's unpopular from the standpoint of just straight skill. I'm not sure that I've heard anybody say that, <laughs> that he's like the best, right? I think he's in the top of the best. I mean, I am a DMX yeah, no. diehard. Like I know every song, every lyric, like I am DMX to the bone. But I think if you put Eminem up against- Just pure skill, today, right? Pure skill? Pure skill. Yeah. Pure skill. When uh, it's funny because I am also a DMX diehard, and he's by far not even—it's not even close second. My by far my favorite rapper of all time. You share, DMX, you share this. He, yeah, it's one of our. It's actually when when you applied for the job at Skyrocket, I didn't even. You were actually—I wasn't even considering you, right? You bombed your interview, but then when you said you love DMX, I'm just joking. He nailed his interview, folks. But it's also just happens that we lo both love DMX, and it was a perfect okay. synergy. DMX understands something about music that I think a lot of rappers like either didn't get or or I, I don't know. I, I don't know now. I'm not. My sister calls it well, doesn't call, it, but it's like the mumble rap that kind of goes on oh, now. Yeah, and she's absolutely. as a as a as a you know '90s hip hop fan. She's uh, she's di disillusioned by by a lot of it. But DMX understands something about music about like big choruses normally reserved for like rock rock groups and he understands what it's like to absolutely. hit a chorus and just the song explodes absolutely uh, and uh and it always just drew me to to the end there's like a tenacity in yeah. his uh in his in his lyrics and in his style and so he's not my best but he's my favorite you have something go go but, ahead but please. michael yeah if you were to put them toe to toe in a freestyle yeah who would win oh eminem Smash, he would just smash him. He would, right. Right, smash him. Absolutely. But yeah, um, I, I am going to go different here. And so this is going to be, this answer is a little, these guys aren't the, the best, right? Like they're not the, the best. The best. No, I know. Here's why, here's why they're the best. Because they're the, they're the, I think they're the most influential rap group of all time. I actually think that this band is, one of the most influential music groups, well, this group is one of the most influential music groups of all time. And they are astonishingly rarely talked about, right? They are like, they're barely talked about in the pantheon of all time greats, but public enemy to me oh, is absolutely all time. They, 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 I think they changed the game. They, they just got it. Like the, 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 the topics, the just the live show, the interplay Absolutely. between Chuck D and Flavor Flav, yes, yes. right? I mean, yep. those first, the I guess those, I'm not sure if they were the first two, but Fear of a Black Planet into It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold yes. Us Back, yep. uh, to me is just some some of the greatest rap music of all time. And so even though I wouldn't say that Chuck D, for instance, is yes. a better rapper than, yes. than Eminem, right? Or I'm than DMX right. or than Nas, Right. I, I, I kind of missed the Biggie Tupac thing, which I'm sure is yeah. going to make some people lose their minds. I, I kind of like, know. I was like Big Daddy Kane, more like coming right now. Cool G rap. <laughs> and then, uh, then like kind of skipped Biggie and Tupac and then got into like DMX and stuff like that. But I think if you put Chuck D head to head with any of those, any of those, oh, absolutely. any of those guys, he'd, he'd, he'd get smashed. Right. But like in terms of like big time, like, influence and just the importance of the work. I think uh, Public Enemy is, is, is top notch. I mean, you, you, you did change the question from best rapper. Now you got a rap group. Well, listen, um, I, it's, I, listen I, I ask the questions. When you ask questions to me, you can change them however you want. 
Let's do our next one, friends. Right. Uh, I've just we've got to tell you. I'm going to ask Antonio in a moment. What's something he's learned, or what's something that may be inspire, inspiring, or may resonate? But before uh, we're going to do something a little different. I'm not going to you first. I just have to share this thing that we're seeing playing out in schools right now, which is all across the country that um, managers, and I'm talking about superintendents or assistant soups who manage the, the, the principal below them or, or a chief academic officer who match, manages people on their team or a principal who manages an assistant principal, these folks are giving feedback to the people, to their direct reports, and it's going really badly, um, almost across the board. Uh, I've had two dozen conversations in the last month from people who've been like, I gave this person feedback. They hated it and pushed back. Or a person who said, I got feedback. It made no sense. It was irrelevant. What are they even basing this on? Mm -hmm. And it is this thing that you and I have called out for years. You actually have a name for it, which is why I'm going to you second, because you're going to share a story, quick story from your past. Oh, yeah. um, but that that there's a you actually have a name for this thing that is that is that is playing out. And 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 there's a there's a we are frankly, we are obsessed with fixing this thing. We're not this stuff still playing out. So we're obviously not doing a, a good enough job yet. But Antonio, tell us about your job in retail from all those years ago and uh, the title you, you gave to, to oh, yeah. at the time. Um, you know, so back in the day in high school, working in retail, um, I can't remember what store I used to work. I don't know if it was Montgomery Ward or Macy's, one of those um, stores that are that, that retail stores. And I used to have this manager and for the first six months of working there, I never actually met him. He sort of like floated through and people would say, hey, I saw Mr. Wilson. Um, did anybody else see Mr. Wilson? And he was like this, this you know, apparition that was floating between the racks and every now and then you'd see a glimpse of him <laughs> in the back of his head. And we actually called him uh, a ghost manager because we weren't really sure um, if he was at work that day, if he was, you know, if he actually existed, it was like a Yeti. I mean, he would just appear out of nowhere and just disappear. Uh, just as quick. And the, the crazy part is whenever he had feedback, you would get paged. Um, Antonio Vance, please come to the manager's office. And you're like, oh crap, what did I do? <laughs> and he would give you feedback on something that was just absolutely out of like three days ago, uh, you were ringing up someone and you gave them a 13% discount. and It was actually only 15%. <laughs> and you'd be like, wait, what? Not only was it disconnected from, you know, any, any practice, but just the fact that, you know, his feedback was not connected to anything. We barely saw him. We weren't even sure if he was really, if he existed half the time. And uh, we, we, we coined him the ghost manager. Uh, of course, behind his back, I think he actually found out we actually called him that. That didn't change his behavior or practice at all. Friends, this is the term, right? Ghost manager. Right? Like, <laughs> think for those of you who get who manage other adults. Um, I'm not. We're not talking about folks who are who are uh, coaching teachers or managing teachers here. Obviously, teachers are adults, of course. Um, but but that's a different conversation. We, we've talked a bunch about teacher coaching. We're gonna continue to talk a bunch about teacher coaching. We were talking about leaders who coach other leaders, who manage other leaders, who met who manage right actually manage them like do not be a ghost manager like antonio had um it is it doesn't end well it never does right forget about the nicknames for a second it leads to discord disharmony folks start to think 
you don't know what you're talking about, right? You gave me feedback that's not aligned to anything. I don't even know what success in my job actually is. And you've given me like a review or yep. you're giving me feedback on a thing that I didn't even know was the thing. Like, so we're going to, we're going to spend a, a whole lot of time on this in, in coming episodes. And, and by the way, Skyrocket, the, uh, our company is actually going to be doing a lot of work around this, but, but for now, don't be a ghost manager. Don't be a ghost manager. If you manage people, tell them what success looks like. What what does a good job look like? And then tell them how you're going to support them in getting there and giving them and giving them feedback. Um, quickly, before we get to what you're drinking, I just have to tell you an hilarious story. Every, everybody listening to this has probably heard of the, the movie The Breakfast Club back from the 80s, John Hughes film, Molly Ringwall, Judd Nelson. Anthony Michael Hall, Ali Sheedy, Emilio Estevez. I know the whole cast. I've seen it 40 times. But the, I was in a, this happened in a, in a school. This, this happened in a school. There's a very famous scene in that movie where Judd Nelson's character, he plays, a, the, he plays the high school kind of like a bad boy named uh, John Bender. And they're in Saturday detention. Everybody knows this. And the principal and John Bender get into an, uh, a, an, an argument where uh, the principal's like, you know, you, you, you're talking out of turn, uh, you're going to get detention next week, right? And John Bender goes, make it another one, all right? And they're like having this argument back and forth. And it gets to one point, right, where he's like, you want you want another one? And John and uh, Judd Nelson's like, yes. And he's like, there's another one, pal. And he's like, so? And he's like, and this is the whole scene where he says, eat my shorts. This is like the whole, does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? Eat my shorts. Well, this happened in a, in a, in a classroom the other day. A teacher's teaching and there's a student who unbeknownst to the teacher and everybody else is is watching the breakfast club on their laptop and <laughs> nobody can see and nobody can hear but somehow the student gets unmuted and she and the the teacher starts to hear men arguing and she starts to hear she hears eat my shorts and the teacher is freaking out she's like uh, excuse me who said that and it's like oh and the, and basically the teacher is trying to uh, <laughs> the teacher is trying to de-escalate the two men from, by the way, <laughs> who are on a, in a movie from 35 years ago or four, I don't know how long ago it was, but like 30 something years ago, one of them's actually deceased. Uh, She's trying to de-escalate this argument. She's trying to figure out what's going on. She's hearing inappropriate language. She's totally freaking out. Um, and she is, uh, and anyway, they got it figured out. And uh, we found out that uh, some students look like they're paying attention and they're, uh, and they're really not, which uh, we, we all we that this was recorded that so we can go viral. <laughs> <laughs> it was not recorded. It was not recorded, but uh, she was, the teacher was needless to say, she was very, she was disappointed that her student was watching a video she was happy to find out there weren't two men who'd zoom bombed her room and were now having like an inappropriate argument that uh, little kids. That's off to her de-escalation. She's going to solve that problem. I love it. That's right. That's, That's right. Off. She's amazing. Let's do it. Um, Vance, are you drinking something? What are you so having? It, absolutely. You know, so in honor of our guest who is, <laughs> I'm sure, you know, indulging in a happy hour because it's you know, after it's evening in the UK, I am having a brunch drink. Um, so I am having a mimosa with some nice, uh, you know how I do, fancy champagne and a nice little dash of uh, pineapple juice and orange juice mixed together with some champagne and a little bit of spritzer. Nice little uh, mimosa. <laughs> I know I've been drinking it for a little while, so I'm getting my volume control together. 
I um I've always I've had mimosas and I always like mimosas to me are just like the gateway to like the you could drink a mimosa at 11 a.m. It's harder to drink like a whiskey at 11 a.m. But you could drink oh, yeah. a mimosa at 11 a.m. And it's like, oh, that's normal. Like somebody looks at you and they're like, oh, that person doesn't have a problem. They're normal. Oh, great. Um, and so you can drink mimosas until like, I guess, about noon. And then after that, it's uh, whiskey and wine and beer. I am unfortunately maybe it's fortunate. I'm in I'm on day 33 of 75 hard. If you don't know what that is. It's 75 straight days of a like mental and physical challenge where no alcohol is able to be consumed. So I'm on day 33. But but for those of you who listened to the last episode, um, you know that we are going to break. I'm going to break this alcohol fast with some shots of Jägermeister in 40 something days. Um, so no booze for me today. But I am with all the folks who are drinking uh, in spirit. Uh, no pun intended, or maybe pun intended. Oh, yeah. All right, Antonio, it's time to bring out our esteemed guest. Uh, I've referred to him earlier as an international man of mystery. I think that's that's apropos. More specifically, um, he is the head of uh, the International Center for Educational Enhancement and the Director of Education for Kunskaps Colon in the UK. I think I did okay with my pronunciation there. Antonio's given me a thumbs up. Yeah. Uh, his name is John Bomber, and John, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? Thank you. Really great. Really, awesome. really pleased to be here. Great, John. Uh, we're excited to dive into to all things education with you in a moment. Before before we start, we know that educators um, often like to have a cocktail to relax, particularly on a Friday, which this is. Antonio is indulging. I'm I'm not. Are you having a cocktail with us today? Me? Uh, well, it's I'm British. It's four thirty in the afternoon, so I'm having a cup of tea, aren't I? Um, <laughs> not really. I was just interested that this would be the first question you asked me. I'm wondering what sort of reputation Mr. Vance, Doctor Vance, has given you really about me, really. But I'm having a I'm having a gin and tonic. Woo! Okay? What kind okay? of gin? It's yeah. a botanist gin. It's my favourite gin. And it's a, a very large one. Uh, my wife bought me these very large gin glasses. It's impossible to have anything other than a treble, treble, I think, in one of these. But um, we had a conversation the other day about, about this. And um, I decided that, because I've been locked down basically for nine months, we're still locked down here. And uh, we've decided that we are spending more money on gin than we are on petrol at the moment. <laughs> Well, John, so folks at home, you can't see John's glass, but he held up this. He's got this chalice of, uh, of gin. The, John, I, here's the thing is that you say that that's a gin glass, but I think that that's a water glass that you've just convinced yourself only gin can go no, in no, there. No, it's no, actually, it's actually called a gin glass. <laughs> is it it's really? Called, it is actually, yes. Yeah, it's a it's, British gin glass. Got it. All right. All right. Popular. Well, we are, uh, Antonio is the gin connoisseur here, and so I'm glad you all are our line and your, and your love of, uh, mm -hmm. of gin. Let's, um, let's talk shop, John. Thanks for, uh, thanks for making the time for us. One of the things I, before we even start, you know, your, your resume is, is four pages long. Even your, your current titles are, are, uh, are a mouthful. <laughs> so can you tell, tell us, tell our listeners, what exactly do you do in education right now? And, and why does that matter? So, um, well, the reason it's so long is that I, I did some calculations the other day and 66 years ago, I went to school and I'm still damn well there, you know? So, yeah, yeah. so this year it's 50 years since I actually started teaching. And oh. um, my wife tells me that I'm not to use the retire word ever again. <laughs> uh, so 
So actually, we're, uh, I was listening to the radio the other day and they said, you need to use the word rewire. So when you change your career and do something different, it's rewire. So Antonio, I, like I, know, Anto I know Antonio because we've been working around the Kunskapskolen network for a few years. Um, and then I had the opportunity at the uh, start of last year, a great time to start a job just as the pandemic hits, oh, yeah. uh, to be able to move to the University of Bolton as associate professor and uh, to open up the center for, as you described, educational enhancement. Basically what we're focused on, I mean, the reason we're called what we are is it's I-C-E-E -E, and they, uh, they like titles that sound like something. So we're IC, <laughs> okay. Uh, but actually what we wanted to be was the center for uh, school improvement and educational leadership. So we're really driven by um, personalization, by globalization, equity and social mobility. That's the focus that, that our work is. Um, and I'm privileged to work with Professor David Hopkins, who is probably one of the top five intellectuals uh, and rep a person of reputation with, their, with regard to school improvement. So, so that's our work. And the centre is focused in four areas. We teach, so we're developing masters and doctorate programmes around educational leadership. Uh, and we're really keen to do this in a modern way that draws on people's practice as opposed to something theory. We want to position ourselves between policy and research and practice. And generally in the UK, I don't know about the US, that's not what happens. Universities are concerned with policy and research and theory, but not practice. And we want to be in that area which draws on that research and evidence and moves it into practice to have, a, have an impact. So our master's programs and what we've developed are all about drawing on what teachers are doing to provide the evidence that they are working at that master's level through coaching. We're, we're building networks locally, nationally, and internationally about school improvement. We are um, also in the process of developing 20 laboratory schools. We stole that from you actually in America. There is no such thing as a laboratory school in the US, UK. So we are in the process of validating 20 laboratory schools and some around the world as well. Um, and so that, that's the sort of focus of the area. So, and then I have this side bit, which I've always been doing, which is working with about 30 to 50, well, 50 schools at the moment that are inspired by our Kunskap School and model, um, where I started my work after headship uh, with my Swedish colleagues. Awesome. So that's what we're about. I always feel like Moses when I give this resume of what I'm doing. So sorry, it was four pages long. It's been a long time. <laughs> Thank no, you, and, and well and well deserved <laughs> and, and well and well earned. And I know Antonio, you're you you know a whole lot about the Kunskap School and model. You're gonna you you all are gonna dive in on that oh, here. Yeah. Michael, I'm so happy that you're able to to say that. So I mean, folks really, really struggle with 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 Swedish. So it looks like you might have a little Swedish background there. You blows right off the tongue. It's just it's all luck. <laughs> John, you know, I the the Kunskap School and model is so um, important to me. You introduced this to me uh, several years ago. Um, I fell in love. I, I, you know, instituted that model in a school um, in New York. Tell us a little bit about why this is different. What, what, when you think about, you know, you've been to schools in the U.S. Um, and even in the U.K. What, what is different about Kunskap Skolen and that model, and, and how does it pair with your philosophy of education and learning? 
So there are a lot of people who use the same words as we do. So a lot of people use the word personalization. A lot of people say things like uh, students are at the center of everything that we do. A lot of people say they are coaching and all of those sorts of things. But the reality is they're not. They're just sort of buzzwords. The reality is not there. So the Kunstkapskola model, which is now, what, 21 years old, uh, is built around really recognizing that all children are different. And therefore, if we don't recognize that, we all know that to be the case, but if we don't recognize that in how we build our schools, how we work in our schools, we will never enable ourselves to be able to get the best out of them. So Kunstkapskolen is about recognizing that difference and then finding the right pathway or way for every individual to take charge of their learning to be able to reach that outcome. Um, I'll just give you a particular example which frightens people to death the first time I talk about it. So if you were to go to Sweden to a Kunstkapskolen, the students are managing 50% of their timetable every day. They're deciding what they're going to do because they're very clear about the goals they want to hit. They know what they can do. They know what good looks like. Okay. Um, and that's quite an anathema here in the UK where we try and control every aspect of learning. We train them to pass the examination. So to think that a youngster could make a decision at the beginning of the day about where they wanted to be and what they needed to learn and how they needed to learn and have different ways of doing that is quite unique. Um, and it's built on goals and coaching specifically to be able to enable that to happen. So it's giving young people agency. Um, I was talking to um, a colleague of ours, Antonio, up in Woodstock, and he used the word executive functioning, which I'd never heard before. It's part of the <laughs> language differences that you and I constantly smile about. Um, but that's what it's about. It's about giving young people the opportunity to manage their learning and a future their lives to be able to be successful young people because they've taken charge of it they know what their goals are they know what they want to be and how to do that and it's about creating the tools that enable that to happen because it doesn't just happen automatically it has to be lots of checks and balances to be able to make it. it's not permissive at all it's about motivating them to take charge and when they don't helping them do that so John, this is, uh, and thanks for the, for the clarification there, um, or the, really the explanation of what Kunstkapskolen is. One of, my, one of my trigger words in education is uh, innovation. I hear people all the time, we need to innovate more. And um, I've actually stopped going to a certain conference because they're like, we need to innovate. Like, uh, no, like, uh, you know, like people, I was at a, I was at a different event uh, two years ago and innovation right there's all these people talking about innovation and in education right innovation 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 and to me it, it it drives me absolutely bonkers because i feel like 90 plus percent of the things that people want to innovate around would be solved by doing the basics and the fundamentals at a at a, at a really high level and so but but kunskap's going the the model is innovative and so um tell me as you see it, as somebody who works with schools around the around the globe, where where am I where am I right about this innovation thing not being the thing that 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 folks actually need? And and where tell me where I'm tell me where I'm wrong here. So I sort of agree with you and disagree with you. So uh, and in fact, the present times as well, I think, uh, are particularly pertinent in this. So we talk a lot about whole school design about don't just do a bit of it. If you're going to design your school, think of the whole thing. 
So Kunstkapskolen developed its pedagogy. You could call it innovative, but most of the things we know, I have this belief that most of the things that make things better for young people are out there and we know them. we just don't use them. Right. because we're full of all sorts of prejudices like setting and groups and, and and we keep doing things like holding kids back that we know don't work but as teachers it's easier for us to be able to manage in that particular way yeah so i think that the kunstkapskolen model is a whole school design it says we know that young people learn in this particular way it's not innovative we know that this is how it is and if we can motivate them if we cook them in and we can do great teaching and learning and we can give them interest and relevance to what they're studying they will do well how do we then design the school so it actually enables that to happen can we think about the building can we think about our schedule? Can we think about teacher time? Can we think about student time? Can we just take the blocks off and, uh, and our um, uh, typical patterns of what we think a school should be and try and pull that together? So, so most of the time in schools, we have to, you know, we design our learning and everything else around the building that happened to be there. And we've yeah. fixed on this classroom sort of picture. Whereas, you know, if we actually thought a bit about how young people learn and the different types of learning and the fact that they need space to be able to explore things rather than just have lesson after lesson after lesson, then that we know all these things, but we never seem to implement them. So I, I worry a bit about the word innovation because I think it is just drawing on the best practice and then designing a whole school around that. It's interesting. And just one follow-up point here that you're making me think of and... Um... You know, and this is probably my own doing. Uh, I was with a, a, some folks yesterday who um, had an idea for an upcoming training. And they said, we think, Michael, we think you're going to hate this uh, because it was less kind of uh, A plus B equals C and less really tangible outputs, inputs and outputs. And uh, I, I didn't hate the thing. Um, but I, I think that um, I've probably led some people to believe that skyrocket and even me personally that we're down on, uh, the, the, whether we like the word innovation or not, that we're down on this, this newer idea or this different approach. What, what we are down on is poor, poor implementation and poor execution, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Like <laughs> that is, I, I will go Absolutely. to my grave with that. <laughs> like, so people are like, oh, you don't like our model. No, no, no. Your model is not the issue here. It's your execution of the model, right? Mm -hmm. That that's, that's the problem I have. And so I think one of the things, and so if you look at a Kunskap school, and I know we're going to learn more about this in a moment, but I see that in a tradition, like I see schools where folks can barely get the like direct Absolutely. instruction mm -hmm. with kids seated, kids in seats, teachers planning, and can barely get the like, I'm presenting content with a measurable learning, learning outcome, and it's going to be a transferable skill. And I'm going to model like we can folks who can barely get that going. And by the way, that's not a judgment. That's what why we exist, why Skyrotic exists just to support those folks. So, so then when I hear folks saying, hey, we have this great idea around this new thing, it scares the heck out of me because those folks mm -hmm. likely haven't proven that they can that they can master the basics. And so now they're trying to do something. We use the example, um, if, if, you, if somebody can't make a layup in basketball, you don't say, hey, we'll just dunk the ball instead. That's harder yeah. than the first yeah. thing, right? Yeah, and absolutely. so that's where I think my, that's where I think some of my, uh, some of my uh, concerns. No, I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. So if a school came to me that is totally dysfunctional, I'll say, please don't do this. Just concentrate <laughs> on the basics. Yeah. If you can't do the maintenance things, if you can't get the basics right, 
then, then there's no way you're going to develop this school. So please concentrate on those basic things. And we know that actually a school will never be any better than the quality of its teaching. So actually making sure that that works first is important. And then you can start to think about being a bit more innovative and a bit more imaginative about that and take those things forward. And I think it's really interesting if you look at, you know, if you look at change, I think school leaders are generally really bad at managing change. And yet change is the only constant in our schools, certainly in the UK, changes all of the time. And change is easy, but actually improvement is much, much harder. And it's as you say, you know, so very often we don't have instructional leaders. They come up with an idea, but then they don't translate that idea into what would happen in the classroom. They leave it for individual teachers to reinvent what they think you meant. And therefore you get, you therefore get poor implementation along the way. Yeah. So, so, so it, if you go to Kunskapskolen in Sweden, they lay down, there's a manual on everything that moves. You know, so if we're running a workshop session, what is a workshop session? What should I be doing? Okay, once you've laid that down, you can use your professional expertise and your character as a teacher to be able to do that in whatever way you want. But we need to define and be clear about what great teaching is and what repertoire you use to be able to make those things happen. And and people don't do that. And therefore, they have these brilliant ideas. We change them. Sometimes it goes well, and then it drops off at the end because we've just not maintained that structure, never defined what it is that makes the difference. Love it. Michael, this sounds like a future skyrocket podcast episode, right? Like, <laughs> it, it absolutely does. Like, that. I mean, we talk about execution as everything, and it just, it's great. But Michael, I was thinking the entire time that uh, you, you would cringe. Um, one of the first, uh, uh, you know, um, dives into the U.S. that Kunskapskolen made, the name of the school was Innovate. <laughs> Absolutely. Got Absolutely. it. And Got it. Um, yeah. so like, I, you're right, like we talked, um, I think it was maybe our first episode where we talked about buzzwords um, yeah. and, and how we just use terms just without substance behind it. And the last point I want to make, which I think is really important, and John, I appreciate this, is folks sometimes think, think that the education problems are just in the U.S. or um, that we have, but as, uh-huh. you, as you can hear John talk, the same exact issues that we have um, in the U.S. are the same in the U.K., are the same in Sweden, are the same across, you know, the country after country that we visit. And that's why we have to, to, to reach out um, across the pond so that we can work together and synergize um, our best practices uh, to solve some of these problems. And one of those things that I think are, is really important, pivotal, is around goals. We, we had an entire episode um, around goals and we know that they're important. And I know that Kunskapskolen uh, goals is at, at the center of that and you've just mentioned it. Um, can you talk to us about how you approach goal setting work with, with leaders and the folks that you're working and thinking about you know, some of the things from Kunskapskolen and other, uh, other educational practices. Uh, talk a little bit about why goal setting is important um, and, and how you approach this. Okay, so I'm going to start with goal setting with students first, and then I'll move to the adults afterwards, because actually that's the way it's happened as well. <laughs> so, so within Kunskab within, um, within School, at the heart of the model is that young people set themselves goals. 
And actually, if you're not careful, if you stop there, they just become dreams. You have to then find the strategies that will actually help them achieve those goals. And, um, and the only way you can do that is to, to be able to, particularly if you believe young people are different, uh, you have to have a coach. You have to have someone that helps them develop that and challenges them. And I mean, I mean a coach. I don't mean a mentor or anything like that. I mean someone who will get behind this, believes in them all the time, will advocate for them all the time, um, and will help them make the right decisions to reach their goals. Okay. And there's lots of structures around so that, you know, it, it needs to be visible and transparent how you would reach that goal. So in terms of the curriculum and the structure, there's lots of stuff that you then have to do to enable that happen. But if you don't build, and, and I would say that one of the best things we can do for young people is to make them self-regulated, make them be able to take charge of their lives, okay? And the most important thing about that is that they have to be motivated to start with. And if you can say to a youngster, and Antonio, you and I have done this in the school, you know, if you can get them to talk about what would you like to be? We know they're going to change their mind 16 times along the way. We know that some of them are going to come up with ideas that, oh, I'm not quite sure that's going to happen. But let's let, let them dream and let them come up with that ideas. That will then frame something about what they wanted to be. Absolutely. You then have to then break it down so that every week, every month, every year, they know what that goal translates into in every lesson, what I have to do to be able to make the journey to that. That's the bit that we as teachers need to know and need to know. How, we don't need to worry the kids about the mechanics of how we create that, but we have to create that visibility so they know that what that is. Once you do that, you can then say to a youngster who's falling off the wagon for all sorts of reasons, and kids do this all the time, all over the world. They get things wrong. They're teenagers, okay? Um, if, they, if they're not achieving at the level that they expected, you can say to them, didn't you tell me you wanted to be an architect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't we say that you needed to have this sort of level of work all the time to be able to, yeah, you did. But we're here, why is that? Have you changed your mind? Do you not want to be an architect? No, I still want to be that. So, okay, so how do we get back on the wagon? How do we get back to that particular point? Let's talk about the steps that we would take to do that. And it might not be now, it might take a long time, but let's talk about that. So having that as the intrinsic motivation is the most important thing, I think, that we can do in schools. Let, let's believe in them, let's trust in them, and let's help them make those important decisions. Now, what's really interesting is that it's really, really strange in a way we haven't thought about this until quite recently, is that teachers are exactly the same, okay? <laughs> That why, why, you know, in, in our country, nurses, social workers, medics have to have by right clinical supervision. In other words, they have to be coached. They have to have an opportunity to test what they're doing and how they're doing and check out. We never do that with teachers. And yet, if you think about the job of the teacher and the number of people we work with and the challenges we face every day and the variety of issues young people bring to you, we never do that. We don't actually allow that to happen. So we're working at the moment, one of the big projects I'm working hard in the UK is to get every teacher a coach and to be able to create that. And for that to happen, you cannot coach unless you have a goal, you, unless you've set something that you want to be. And some of it, some of it is professional, but some of it is about self, okay? And about, you know, particularly as we go back after COVID, 
and all the nonsense of this. Some of them have come back with tragedy in their lives. Some of them have lost the purpose about why we came into the profession. Some have lost their self-belief. If we don't sort of let them identify how they can then set themselves a new goal to get back into this and then help them be coached for that, we will not end up with the outcomes that we actually wish. Sorry, I'll get off my soapbox. No, John, that was really inspirational. I mean, absolutely inspirational. We're, we're, we're applauding over here, John, because oh, we're, yeah. total, we're totally aligned. Absolutely. You, you've summarized our past few uh, <laughs> uh, sessions. So okay. you know, I want to talk a little bit about, <clears throat> um, you, know, you, you know, you're from England, you live there now, um, but you've worked in education around the globe. So your experience and, and the things that you're saying aren't just isolated uh, to the UK. Um, and I know you talked a little bit about your resume, but tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the other, the, the other countries that you've worked in and sort of how all of this sort of ties together. I know I mentioned like educational challenges are the same. I went to a, a conference in the UK and if it wasn't for the accent, um, I would have thought I was in the US. Okay, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's really interesting that. So, so I've worked now in, I, I couldn't write this script. You know, I finished uh, being a head, I'd been a head for 20 years in the UK. And my wife told me it was enough. Okay, I'm not gonna live with you any longer if you stay as being a head teacher. Okay, so I rewired. Okay, I spent two weeks in the garden then decided I had to get out and do something else. So I've worked in Saudi, I've worked in South Africa, India, the Netherlands, Sweden, the US. And I went from being a head in, in the UK, where I used to stand at the front door as my 2000 students arrived and say, coat, earrings, you know, just the normal thing about you have to be dressed appropriately for school, you know, and you can do that in a nice jokey way, you know, they expect me to do that. But, you know, very disciplined in the way, you know, I was a head of a school that was founded by Queen Elizabeth I, you know, so, and we had a tradition and people wanted us to have that tradition and the uniform and all the rest of it. So I went from that where, you know, everyone called me sir and uh, bowed and scraped every time everyone stood up in every classroom when I walked into it. You know, like, it was quite, quite straight. We had a chapel and we had chapel services, you know, five times a week. You know, it's really interesting. So I went from there to be a head in Sweden. I never intended to be a head in Sweden, but I ended up being a head in Sweden in Kunskapskolen for three years. To a situation where kids would come in in the morning, give me a high five and say, hey, John, did you have a good weekend? And, I'm, and I have to resist the, the, the nerve to say, did you not mean to say, sir? Okay, so so there are there are big cultural differences in, in that respect, but but at the end of the day, you know, as you said, Antonio, kids are kids. They have the same teenage problems as everywhere else. Okay, there is no, you know, we want great teaching. We want great. It's the same job in the same way in the same place. The difference is, I think, is about the systems we have to work in. You know, um, I'm not going to be rude about education in the United States, but I was shocked. You know, I, I Please can't be, be as rude as you need to be, John. We need to hear I, it. Tell us. I, I could not understand when I came to what is now the school where Antonio and I worked. I could not, and this is before Antonio was there, I could not understand how we could have a system where, where only 15% of them were regarded as reaching competency at the end of the year. 
and why they were tested in every individual year on things that culturally were not really relevant to them. You know, I looked at some of the papers and they talked about hitchhiking and and uh, sewing machines and things that were totally outside the experience and culture of the young people sitting in front of us. How could you design a system where at the age of 11, 85% uh, of the kids felt they'd failed? You know, so, so the issue is not about the school, the kids, the teachers. That's not the, the, the it was the systems that were, were different. And believe me, I could give you chapter and verse about why I think the English system is rubbish as well. But, but you know, that, that's, that's the big difference between countries. John, you, uh, I know baseball is not huge in, uh, in the UK, but you, no. you, threw, you threw me what, what, what we call over here a softball by bringing up Queen Elizabeth I. Uh, and so <laughs> I'd love to talk to you about Queen Elizabeth II and the royal family. For those of you listening, uh, the I was Meghan trying really hard not to go there. <laughs> the Meghan Markle interview just happened. Um, what is our people? What's the what's the uh, what's the tenor in uh, the UK right now? What are folks thinking about the royal family? Has it been well? Blowback? I think it. Uh, I think it depends very much about whether you are a royalist or not. Okay, so I'm a royalist, and my wife is not. So there's absolutely my wife believes everything that's been said, and it's just typical of this, you know. Whereas <laughs> I, I well, let's just think about that, you know. You know this. I personally feel this is a family thing, and they are an you know archaic in the as, as a family. And you know there are lots of positive things about the Queen, but it is a to, it's like two generations back, and her her right of duty and how to operate and that it just isn't relevant to most of us within society. So, so yeah, so I I, I sort of feel just stop talking about it, everybody, please. It's really not that important, okay. Well, it is important if the royal family is racist. You know, that is important right. because we are at the head of a commonwealth of 45 countries across the world, you know, and that's an important thing. I don't believe the family is racist. I think they're probably archaic uh, and I don't get it. But, you know, I, I just I just wish they'd stop talking. Right? It's like Princess Diana all over again, really. It's uh, it's embarrassing, embarrassing. Well, got it. Um, I didn't know that royalist was an actual term. I wasn't aware that that was a, a real, uh, a real thing. Well, it avoids us having a president. Would you say that? Would you say it avoids us having a president? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I got it. I got it. Thanks, John. John, I'm thinking like you know, what's something people you know outside of the UK and England think um, that is true about? England and, and, and British folks that absolutely, absolutely isn't true. Well, let me turn, I, I, I wondered about you, whether you'd ask me that and tell me what you think. Uh -oh. What do people in America think of, of British people? And I'll tell you whether it's true or not. Well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that British people are offended by the word fanny. Well, that is true. <laughs> We had, I remember you and I having this conversation about fanny packs, and I think you can't call it a fanny pack. It's a bum bag. It's a bum bag. You know, fanny is not a word that you could possibly use in the UK. We think that people in England and the UK have an accent. Yes, I, it's interesting that when I was with you, the kids would say, 
oh, John, just talk to me. I love your accent. And I would say, no, no, this is English. You have the accent. <laughs> you have the American accent. That's. I true. guess some of the things that uh, we hear is about the Brits is that you all are overly polite. Um, that the food, the food, the food is no, the food is no good. Um, what are some of the other? I'm trying to think of some of the other stereotypes. You t you tell us what's what's what's. Well, I think people think we're quite stuffy and antisocial. Oh, I think, stuffy, uh, yeah. yeah. So I think that's, uh, uh, and I think our society, the way our society is structured, is a bit like that. You know, I live in the north of England, so I think everyone in the south of England is stuffy and overinflated. So I mean, I think uh, I think people think that. I think Antonio, when you come here, I think you're quite surprised that. Oh, and stiff upper lip is the other thing, isn't yeah. it? Actually, you know, you don't get emotional about things. You know, mm. that's the queen thing as well. You don't get emotional about things. You know, actually, I don't think that's true. I don't think the majority of people are like that anymore. Uh, but it was a very sort of traditional view of, of the UK. Well, John, when um, we come to the UK, what do we eat? What's the, what's the must? Well, fish and, fish and chips and roast beef, isn't it? Well, that's the stereotypical. Yeah, the French call us roast, roast beef. They call us that. That's what we're Mr. Roast Beef. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, it's hard for me to answer that because I don't eat meat. So I'm a pescatarian. So I eat fish and vegetables. I don't eat meat. So it's hard for me to tell you what. But I mean, fish and chips, obviously. I mean, we're the best fish and chips in the world, really. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think uh, 30 years ago, our food was rubbish, overboiled vegetables and tough meat is basically what you were served. And um, all sorts of strange things like tripe and black pudding. But um, I think there's been a renaissance here. I mean, there are, there's some fantastic restaurants now and I think the food here and, and both gastro pubs and the like we've been to some antonio there's oh. some fantastic food the oxo tower remember oh, yes. looking down oh, yes. over the thames to st paul's god i treated you well didn't i really, when you, came here. <laughs> you did friend you did and i look forward to when we can um no, so i would say don't so forget I asked, about uh, me i hope i get an invite too <laughs> <laughs> no i asked this question to my wife you know what would what would be and she said um well, afternoon tea in a really in Northcote Manor would be great. You know, smoked salmon sandwiches and cucumber sandwiches and beautiful cakes. And, oh, that's uh, but 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 actually, there's some fantastic. You know, when people ask me about things to eat, I, I think more of restaurants. And because I'm a fish eater, I was some brilliant fish restaurants. The best one I think was at a Kilty Bure on the west coast of Scotland, looking out over the summer islands with all the prawns and fish that were caught along the way. So amazing. Awesome. Oh, that's awesome, John. Hey, hold on a second. Antonio, did your phone just make a noise after we told our guests not to, to have his phone off? Is that what just happened? I'm going to move on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, muting yourself after the phone goes boop, boop doesn't actually doesn't help anything it's i always actually... get weird sounds I, I followed all the rules and somehow uh john we're gonna get towards the end i want to i want to this is a big loaded question um what is something that schools are getting right for 2021 what are some things that schools are actually getting right well i think that um as a profession, 
we have never been so research informed. I think, well, certainly in the UK, I can't speak for you, but there is so much knowledge there around the world now about neuroscience, about how the brain works and, uh, and how we can then respond to that. So I think as a profession, you know, it's really interesting that as a head, and now it's some time ago, I would always ask the question, some of the question about how young people learn. And you could see them sort of like, like shrivel on the seat. What do you mean? How do children learn? Could you imagine asking a doctor a medical question and then not knowing the answer? And the heart of our work is about learning and teachers couldn't really have a conversation with you about that 20 or 30 years ago. So I think the knowledge within the profession about what quality teaching and learning is, is so much better uh, than it used to be. Secondly, I don't think we should dumb our profession down. I was on a train from New York to um, upstate to see David Penberg in Woodstock. So I was on the Hudson line, okay? And the person in front of me was talking, uh, they were talking one to one. They clearly didn't know each other. They were just passing the time. And one of them said, what, so what job do you do? He said, oh, I'm a doctor. I said, okay. what do you do? He said, oh, I'm only a teacher. That's right. And the chap said to him, you need to do something about your PR because a teacher is a really, really important job. That's right. Okay. So, oh yeah, I never thought about that. And I think we consistently underestimate the power and the importance we have as individual teachers to impact upon young people positively and negatively around us. And I think we're beginning to appreciate the power of that and the opportunity to be able to make that sort of difference. Um, and I think in a way, we haven't talked much about the lockdown and all the stuff that kids have, have been through, but I think this is an opportunity. I mean, I think that here in the UK, teachers have become much more respective because parents have had to do the teaching and they've realized how damn hard it is, okay? All our schools went back last, this week and or you can see the collective, <gasps> wow. So I think that we have, if we haven't achieved it, an opportunity to see this profession in the light that it actually should be. Um, I think we have to get things right now to be able to make that happen. But I think that that's something that we can can make a difference. Amen. I couldn't agree more. I was in a, an Uber years ago, or not, not this is long before Uber, but I was in a taxi in Philly and the driver uh, asked what I did for a living. And I said, teacher, and I don't know if I necessarily said only teacher, but something in my tone like caught him off, like caught him or sparked something in him. And he's like, and he's in my country. He was um, he was from Ethiopia. He goes in my country. There's nobody more respected than than the teacher. Uh -huh. He goes, except maybe the president. And even the president was taught. Even the president is where it's the president is because yeah. that person was yeah. taught by teachers. And so it's always uh, it's always resonated with me that I think particularly here, it sounds like in the UK mm -hmm. as well, but definitely in the States, there's this like, oh, you became a teacher so you can get a lot of time off versus like you are <laughs> molding yeah. young minds and you are inspiring children and you are doing really the hardest, um, the hardest work out there. Um, John, can I just can, oh, can I just can I just take you back to the, your innovation word? Please, because I do. think I think we have an opportunity at the moment, which I think there's a risk that we don't take. So Michael Fullan wrote uh, his latest book is The Devil in the Detail, and he draws on Leonard Cohen. And in his his song Anthem, they say there is a 
uh, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And COVID, if COVID is the crack, this is the opportunity to be able to ask ourselves whether what we had before is the right thing or whether this is the opportunity, given that everything is off the table at the moment, to be able to get back to something better going forward with all the things we know about education. Mm. And I think if we don't take this opportunity and we just go back to try and get all our systems up again, rather than try and take what we know to be able to create a better schooling and education for our youngsters, then we'll have missed a really, really important opportunity. I think that was the ultimate mic drop moment in informal observations history. Uh, what a great place to, to end our conversation. And um, John, we are so thankful that we got to spend this time with you today. How's your gin doing? Is, is the, gin, um, is the yeah, gin still there? No, I think I've probably done. <laughs> uh, Antonio, what's up with your mimosa? Long All gone? done, ready for round two, John. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hit you up on uh, WhatsApp, and we're gonna <laughs> continue. <laughs> uh, John, thanks so much uh, for My being pleasure. here. My um, pleasure. It was an amazing. It was amazing to learn from you. Um, for uh, Antonio and the team at Skyrocket, thanks so much for yeah. tuning into Informal Observations, friends. We will see you next time, and until then, keep on rocking. This was Informal Observations with Skyrocket Educator Training. Sign up for our mailing list at wewillskyrocket.com and look out for our next episode.